0: Welcome to ShoreWords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of ShoreWords, and in each episode I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that have inspired their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to be talking again with Kiki Patch and Ryan Anderson. Back in September of 2021, we spoke about their paper that was adapting to shoreline retreat, finding a path forward. And after all the storms we've been having in California this past week or so, I wanted to visit with them again and go back over some of the recommendations and discussions and advance that talk. But before we get back into the real meat of this discussion, we need a break for our sponsors.
1: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom and nearshore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com Geodynamics, delivering solutions improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more.
0: So Kiki and Ryan, our talk a year and a half ago now was wonderful. It was a great talk about your paper. I know you've got papers coming out. You probably have done things in the meantime, but these storms just inspired me to want to talk with you again, because I feel like we're at that point in California, at least, of starting to really need to think again about what we want to do. This was to me, one of those storm sessions that really is a kind of a turning point, We've got rain, saturated soils, floods. There have been fatalities, unfortunately. There's been loss of property. There's been erosion. Beaches have changed. So it's time to get back into this discussion of what is the path moving forward? And at the time, Ryan, we were talking a lot about communication and coastal dynamics, and you're liking to talk with people about how they've remember the coast, what it used to be, what it's like now, and that sort of getting people's stories. So are you planning to reframe any of those questions that you've had in light of the storms we've recently had?
2: Yeah. um, First of all, thanks uh, for having us back. When you said it was 2021, time really flew. I can't even believe it was that long ago. So it's really great to be back here. And um, yeah, you know, I followed a lot of the media coverage and actually got a chance to head out to um, Aptos and Capitol in Santa Cruz um, about a week ago. And you know, I have ongoing work. Kiki and I are working with uh, Gary and Charles on some other projects. And from my own kind of perspective, um, yeah, I'm re. I want to reframe things a bit, but I also want to check in with people and see uh, what they're thinking. And how they're feeling and how it was um, kind of going through this last round of seemingly up here in the bay area it was just endless rain and so i think it's kind of this moment to check in and see where people are with it uh, and what they're thinking especially with what they experienced just sort of relentlessly firsthand and one of the questions i have um, kind of at the front of my mind is whether or not an event like this, does it kind of shift the discussion a little bit? Um, Does it shift it for a while or is it more of kind of a a permanent shift? I'm really interested to see uh, where more people are at with that.
3: Ryan, I'll just jump in there. Again, thanks for having us, Leslie. It's always great to, to be on here. I was thinking back to something I heard back in graduate school where it's like you have to hear the same message something like 57 times before it sinks in. And I wonder if that's the same with sort of seeing the message, right? So Ryan and I, our whole sort of career here is trying to get that message out that our that our coasts are changing, sea level is rising, storms are going to get more intense. And I feel like I've said it 57 times, I don't know. <laughs> but I wonder if you know, being able to see it and see the roads flooded and see the rip rap washing away and seeing the cliffs sort of fall out from beneath the roadways, you know, maybe that speeds up the 57 times and people can start to remember that. I was reading, Ryan, I know up in Santa Cruz, it's crazy up there. We're down here in Ventura, Santa Barbara, and it's bad down here too, but I think a lot of the, at least national coverage, has been up in that Santa Cruz area. It's really pretty crazy.
0: And I think, too, that part of that national coverage has just been because Santa Cruz has kind of had this big sign on it saying, hit me, hit me again. It's been really devastating there.
3: So devastating and just kind of visually stunning with Capitola and the wharf and the sea cliffs. I mean, I, I think it is all the stuff that we have been saying, Leslie, I know for years and years and years, right? Like, it's coming. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> but when you see it like that and you see that cliff fall away and know that you you can't really build that cliff back, right? It's not like a beach where maybe the sand will come back or we could replenish it with more sand, a sea cliff failure is a whole different ball game.
0: And when we spoke a year and a half ago, Kiki, you said something that um, stuck with me: that it takes a large event to call people to action. Yes. Do you? I mean, to me, this is a large event.
3: You know, we talk about the the sea level rise, and it's oh, an inch here, maybe a foot here, but it's really these extreme events that people kind of wake up and say, okay, well, now what are we going to do? But now is also the hard part where, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, and after a hurricane, it's like, okay, we are resilient. We will rebuild everything exactly the same. We will, um, you know, get our insurance money and rebuild that house. But the work that Ryan and I do with Gary and Charles and all of our other collaborators, it's, This is when we need to look at our plans that we've made, right? What is that path forward? What are we going to do when we have these big events that happen? And now we're in the position where we have an opportunity to make more intentional choices in how we sort of rebound and recover from something like this.
0: So Ryan or or Kiki, do you know of any plans that have anticipated an event like we went through, perhaps we'll be going through in the next couple of months. I mean, our storm season isn't over. So just because it's a nice sunny day today doesn't mean that that will be the um, the weather we have going forward. So has any, any of your communities looked at these extreme events as a possibility?
2: I can jump in there a bit. I mean, I can't really speak for... Um, them in too much detail. But, you know, I've been in touch with folks at the city of Santa Cruz and they've been planning, you know, they've been doing a lot of work uh, on planning and trying to think through these kind of issues like on Westcliff Drive, which Westcliff, I I, I don't think this is totally unexpected. Um, It got hit really hard. You had parts of the path collapse. There was a good amount of coverage on that. And so I think um, city of Santa Cruz is one place where those conversations are happening and there's a lot of folks there um, pushing to make that happen. Um, I think what's always hard though is it always seems like, well, you know, we had the big storm, you know, the El Nino of 83. There were the storms in the late 90s. But I think sometimes it feels like you know, it's out there a little bit further away. It's hard to tell though when it's gonna happen. And this kind of, this latest event tells us you, you just don't know when things are gonna come together like that. Like they had 25 to 30 foot waves, five and a half foot tides, plus all the rain. So it was, it, the flooding was from various angles. Um, and in the work that we've been doing this is kind of what we're talking about is it's not just the incremental stuff, but it's when it all comes together and when and where it's going to happen. And it's hard to tell. So I think those conversations are happening. Um, and again, what's gonna, what remains to be seen, um, is whether this sort of is like a threshold where more folks that live along the coast in places like Santa Cruz are looking at what they just went through and maybe like, well, maybe we want to do it a little bit, um, differently next time. And because one thing that I noticed and I, I brought this up was I, I did this hour long beach walk I brought, um, my wife came with me, um, and my two kids and we walked from Aptos all the way up to, um, the pier in Seacliff. And I mean, from stairs ripped off to asphalt ripped apart. The, the state beach there was just destroyed. Rio Del Mar, um, the kind of low-lying part of Rio Del Mar parking lot, still totally flooded. Uh, they had heavy equipment out there. This was Sunday night kind of after the first big round. People were on, I think it's Beach uh, Avenue, still shoveling sand out of their houses at after sunset Um, and like Kiki talked about with the East coast, I think the, the first response is always, you know, let's, let's deal with this right now. It's kind of an emergency response. Let's clean up, let's fix stuff. And I was looking at these people doing this. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's exhausting. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, when there's a point where it's like, well, Maybe we need to start thinking about something else here, especially for stuff that's really at high risk—some of those low-lying homes and that public infrastructure. Um, so, I think I do think those conversations are happening. I think events like this, uh, similar to the eighty-three El Nino and other big storms, maybe play a role in in sort of you know people feeling like, okay, that's enough. We got to do something else here but we will see.
0: We, we certainly will. I, I started my career as a coastal engineer after the 82, 83 storms. So I came to California. I was here in 86 and then started working really as an engineer in 88. But for all of my career, I retired right before all these storms happened. So for the, the bulk of my career, the 82, 83 storms were were the benchmark for what to consider. And my sense is that as we start getting the data on these storms, this one is likely to be the next benchmark for y'all and for folks coming coming into the profession now.
3: I think you're right, Leslie. I've seen that comparison quite a bit. Like, you know, the news articles I've been reading have all been comparing the destruction from these storms to those of the 82, 83 El Nino and what's crazy is we're not even in an El Nino right now. I was just <laughs> reading another article that was looking at um, you know, predicting that later in 2023 we should be entering the next El Nino sort of phase. And what is that gonna look like? So I hope that these are the kind of these are the kinds of, you know, visual kind of destruction that's needed to sort of have that. View in someone's mind when we're making these plans, right? For example, Westcliff Drive. I know they just did a big study out there and it's like, okay, what are our adaption, adaptation pathways? What are we going to do for the next step? And is it, I haven't read that. Maybe you know, Ryan, but I wonder if they're like, okay, when parts of the pathways fall in and the sea cliffs are eroding and all of our riprap that's out there is getting flung all over the place. And now we have parts of the road that are getting destroyed. Is that the point that they maybe make it a one lane road or a walking path? I'm not sure. I hope those are the conversations that are happening now. And Ryan and I hopefully will be putting out the science that can help inform all of those conversations. I did the same thing you did, Ryan, on Sunday. My husband and I finally got out and we drove Highway 1 Basically, from Ventura down into Malibu. And there are parts of that highway right at, you know, Thornhill Broom area where they're still rebuilding it from the last time that road was kind of washed out. And it's crazy to see all the sand that they had placed there is gone. The big rocks they put there to protect the road are moved all around and pretty much gone. And the water is back over the roads. So it's like, okay, how many more times? Does this have to happen where we fix the road and then the road is destroyed and then we fix the road and then the road is destroyed? Like Gary always says, you know, either we're going to have that sort of managed retreat conversation or we're just going to have to keep enduring these unmanaged retreat scenarios, right? Where it's like, oh, we, we thought that might happen. Now it's happened. Now what do we do? So I it was also interesting driving down through Malibu, I noticed more for sale signs than I have ever seen before. I don't know. I've never actually counted them, but as we were driving sort of this stretch down through Malibu, it was like, oh my gosh, for sale, for sale, for sale, for sale. Usually you don't see the for sale signs in the winter. They kind of wait till the nice weather in the summer to put those for sale signs up, but... It gave me a little bit of hope that maybe that messaging is coming through. Like we need to rethink how we're managing and planning our sort of coastal development here.
0: So you think those signs are are just put up recently?
3: I think they're just put up fairly recently. Or maybe I was just noticing (laughs) noticing them more as I'm out there. Like, okay, when are we going to wake up here? And then who's going to buy those houses, right? This is the good time to say, okay, should we continue to sell those houses or should maybe, you know, we figure out a way to have kind of a buyback program where maybe, you know, those houses don't get passed on generation after generation, but maybe like this is it. And then we can plan for some more sort of managed retreat scenarios. I don't know.
0: Hard to say. I mean, and and as we've mentioned before, and and you you both know very clearly, these are all different. They're options. They're different for each community and that make more sense in certain areas than in others. There's often been the, but Malibu is different, but then there are many other communities that also feel they're different and we can't leave our coastline and abandon it when you've got a roadway there you've also got the issue of not being able to have like bits of the roadway move inland and the rest of the roadway stay where it is there's got to be continuity of those so it takes a long time to move roadways and even if you're sort of contemplating it in the planning stage the time from planning to execution can be years so I think these are factoring into what we're going to do in the long run, but we, we have maybe starting to have a temporal idea to response. This will get us through for the next five years. At that point, we will be able to make bigger decisions, longer term protective features that we can implement, and then, or start to implement, so that we're doing something that's a phased response to whatever we have coming in the future.
3: Leslie, I think that's a great point and one that um, Charles and Gary and Ryan and I actually wrote a whole paper about. Like, yes, we actually have done a number of these projects, but they take 30 years. So people don't even tend to realize that these were planned managed retreat projects where... Yes, and in one year, we nourish the beach. In five years, maybe we have some sort of revetment. In 10 years, we're going through the planning and permitting to move the road. In 20 years, we're still thinking about it. And finally, 30 years later, we've moved a whole section of the road inland. It took 30 years. That's why it's important to think about those things and come up with the plans now because it very well may take a decade to implement.
0: Well, I think that comes out of the idea that we also talked about of stationarity and non-stationarity for the shoreline. And Ryan made the point when we were talking before about people tended to develop along the coast back, start developing along the California coast in the 50s and 60s when it was a fairly quiescent period. And so that is the touch point they have for thinking about the coast. But I think that we've gone 70, 60, 70 years since then. We've got two generations of people on the coast who don't have that as their touchstone. But we really view real estate and developed real estate in particular as being sacred and having a level of stationarity that we maybe can't accept anywhere. The coast is one of those quick spots to see that being um, not an effective way to view real estate, but certainly when we've had all the mudslides and the floods and the landslides and the different things that are going on in tandem with all of this, I think the, the idea of dynamics of our landscape is something that multiple different disciplines are starting to talk about. And it seems like this is a great opportunity for people to make those conversations broader than the coast as as just the point of of discussion. Do you see any conversations coming about? Even if we look at Santa Cruz of talking about the landslides and the mudslides and the debris and the shoreline erosion, do you see those being linked together in discussions?
2: I mean, I, I can jump in here, I think, I think ideally, that's what we would start to see happen is, uh, and I think that point about sort of a tendency to, to see these places as much more fixed than they are. And um, even if there's some evidence that they are dynamic, there's also a pretty common tendency, you know, the idea that we can stop it one way or another. Um, But I think moving towards and shifting the conversation more towards just how fluid these landscapes are and how fluid they have been over time would be a really um, big step forward. I mean, that's one of the reasons why coming from anthropology, I also like to draw on a lot of the work of archaeologists. And one book comes to mind. um, It's by uh, Brian Fagan down at Uh, He was at Santa Barbara. And the the book, um, I think it was called The Attacking Ocean. I think it's The Attacking Ocean. Um, But basically what he also does, and I find this part of the book really, really useful, especially for the context here in the U.S. He talks about places in northern Europe that have been dealing with this issue for centuries where you have communities that have, you know, kind of gone through this and dealt with these issues and including like all kinds of catastrophes. But realizing the the reason why in some cases there's kind of a setback there is because in a lot of these places in various parts of Europe, they've seen this stuff happen before the fact that, you know, the ocean is, extremely powerful but also the coastline is kind of a relative position it's not fixed um and i think the the sort of thing that we have going on here uh, along the california coast is sort of this assumption and hope that you know it's going to look like it did in the 50s 60s or 70s and these latest events just like what happened in 82 83 what happened in 97 are telling us otherwise and i think what that's going to translate to eventually um, is like things that maybe are really common and seem like was kind of a good idea. I'm thinking of a lot of the kind of, you know, uh, coastal roads that are right along the ocean. I'm thinking of low-lying spots like Rio Del Mar, but also down in Oceanside, California, near the pier. where And these places are constantly getting battered. this is something coming from mid 20th century sort of ideals and development of like, let's, let's get as close to the water as we can. Um, at some point, the hazards are going to, going to outweigh any of the benefits that we get. And we're probably going to have to rethink how we do that. The problem is, um, it's going to cost money. It's going to take time. And one of the main points, though, that, that and Kiki brought up the paper we just um, published not too long ago. One of the main points we made is that, you know, managed retreat and all these questions of retreat often get polarized into these discussions about, you know, houses on the water versus, you know, the role of the Coastal Commission and government. Um, but in a lot of the cases we looked at, it was actually a lot sort of lower profile kind of long-term very cost intensive and and time intensive projects of like shifting roads and infrastructure back which is again thinking of this latest event this is it's not just houses that is just as one part of the conversation it's actually all the other stuff infrastructure electricity sewage plumbing all that sort of stuff that we have um on the water's edge and we're really going to have to think about that issue. I think Leslie bringing up this issue of fixity and time, this is a key issue and getting people to think beyond five and 10 years is really the big challenge in my opinion.
0: And yet, I mean, that five and 10 year, 20 year perspective is what most many people feel somewhat comfortable trying to do trying to be broader in that perspective is really difficult. And it may be where we can take that on is with infrastructure. Because those bonds that we issue to pay for all the infrastructure improvements and and, and such have a long life. It means you're going to be paying money as a rate payer or as a citizen of the state paying taxes for Caltrans work. That's going to be part of your legacy that you pass on for the next 20 or 30, 40 years of a an indebtedness that we'll have. And that's just, you know, looking at from the purely economic standpoint of how much is it going to cost to repair or relocate. We've not got that same vision for the ecological impacts, which I know Kiki, you focus on a lot. And In your your walk along the coast, your drive along the coast, have, have you seen much of the ecological damage that has occurred, or has that not been part that you've been able to see?
3: I don't know about you, Ryan, but for me, it wasn't something that I could inherently see when I was out on Sunday, but I'm sure we'll start to observe that here in the coming weeks. One thing I wanted to throw in there on your time scale, Leslie, that the five and 10 year sort of recurrence interval, it does seem as though we're having to deal with these kind of events on shorter and shorter timelines, right? Whether it's the fires that sort of denude the landscape, which then make the flooding worse, which then cause more landslides or the big swell events, the king tides, the El Ninos, they seem to be happening uh, quicker and quicker with less time in between. So maybe people will be able to hold those events in their brains a little bit longer and have that kind of memory. Like, oh, I remember in 2015 when the dunes at Pierpont got wiped out. That's why they're important, right? And so those those timeframes become really important in terms of what people will then accept. So I think, you know, all of the attention given to say living shorelines right now, people will actually see those in action. I drove up to um, the, the surfers point area, you know, where they did that whole sort of managed retreat living shoreline dune system. And it did exactly what it was supposed to do, right. Which is provide the space and kind of the elevation to absorb that wave energy and it got worked over so hard i have all of these pictures and you know half of that whole dune system is now washed out but at the same time we need to remember that all of this flooding is putting a lot of sediment into our system and if you give that you know, stretch of coast a few years to recover. Or maybe there's more sand in the system now and it'll slowly get built back up, and those dunes will slowly build themselves back up as well. And so it all comes down to sort of that definition of what is resilience, right? What do we mean when we say it's a resilient coast? Um, I know Gary hates that word for sure. Um, he is always talking about it. But, you know, if we're thinking about the the more natural-ish shoreline where it can kind of take this high wave energy, it erodes, and then it'll slowly build itself back up. Okay, maybe that's resilient. Where we start to armor the coastline and try to hold that line and hold our infrastructure, that's not going to inherently be as resilient because we haven't given it that room to move around. I know Jenny Dugan, who's the great ecologist, the beach ecologist, she always talks about the connectivity of areas. So it's really about the critters being able to move sort of up and down the coast, right? And when we start to cut areas off from one another, we start to see the ecology get impacted quite a bit. And so all of this stuff is going to come into play when We're trying to make these larger decisions on how we manage that coast. How do we keep areas connected for the ecology? How do we maintain Highway 1, right, which is a huge economic driver to our community? How do we maintain certain infrastructure and then figure out where else we can maybe move back a little bit? It's all going to be this kind of give and take I work with Bill King, the, econo- the, econo- the economics guy, quite a bit, it's all about trade-offs. Where are the trade-offs? And I think it's tricky because there's no easy answer.
0: Do you think we're perhaps reframing the questions, though, so that there are no easy answers for sure? But as we start to develop better questions, maybe we can incrementally get answers that maybe aren't easy, but are manageable and, and have that path forward?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that path forward, those sort of adaptation pathways, those are the conversations that I'm hearing more and more, at least down here, probably up where you are too, Ryan, where you start to hear people talking about what are those adaptation pathways? What is our one-year plan, our five-year plan, our 10-year plan? We may not totally know how fast sea level is going to rise, but at least we have this sort of long-term plan set out. I think that's the goal, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll just jump in there. Um, I think it is. And I, I think there's like various stages of it. And what's what's hard to gauge is, you know, I know a good amount of people who are on sort of the front lines at the city and kind of county level, who are in a really tough position of, of, of trying to bring these conversations forward. And then you have kind of members of the, of the public sort of, you know, in, in various places. I'll say this um, for the, the, this, these past couple of weeks, um, getting out to um, Aptos, we went down to um, this little beach um, kind of south of uh, the Sea Cliff Pier. And one thing... There's a few things that really stood out to me. One of them was just the sheer number of people. They were there. Um, and I get a little worried about this sometimes. This, at least in this case, it was a low tide um, and people weren't putting themselves, you know, at risk. But there was all there were all these people um, up on the up on sort of the roads and the bluff tops and down on the beach, just going and seeing what happened there. Right. Not and and that's in addition to people that were, you know, that lived there and were kind of working on stuff. So I think a lot of people saw it, right? And a lot of people experienced it. And it from that week it just kept going. People in Felton and and all along Highway Nine and the 17 and various parts of Watsonville just flood after flood and all these kind of issues. Um and so I think. People saw it, right? And and again, I'm you know I'm wondering how this is going to translate into kind of the longer term, but also what they're seeing. And I talked to a few people. You know, I remember this this one couple that I ran into. They were just kind of walking along the the state beach there, uh, right in Sea And I'm there's this. I don't know how well you know it, but there's these kind of covered picnic areas and this sort of asphalt trail. I mean, the trail was just ripped apart, like 10 foot chunks of concrete were picked up and shifted inland toward the, blaze, uh, the base of the, bu- uh, the bluff there. The, the covered picnic areas, some of them were just just blown down, blown apart, ripped apart, um, and just trash all over the beach, huge logs all over the place, piled up and pushed up against um, kind of that that pathway and some of it pushed up and over it, just a mess. And this one couple was kind of walking behind me and I had my camera with me and they said, um, oh, it's a good day for getting pictures. And I said, well, not really like a good day. It's kind of a terrible day, but there's a lot of evidence here of kind of the power of the ocean. And And that's what one of them said to me was, yeah, they were really struck by just how powerful clearly the ocean is Um, and you know I'm always kind of divided about this because there's there's the sort of conversation that can come about but ideally what we want to do is right not have one more of these that does this that destroys property puts people at risk right until we're willing to like do something a little bit differently, um, ideally. And again, Kiki brought up Gary's point about unmanaged retreat. At some point we we go, all right, well let's do this a little bit differently. Um, and just to, one one other thing that came up just a minute ago, Kiki, you were talking about about this and Leslie, you brought this up, is sort of the ecological dimension. I think Leslie, your point, about seeing these systems as as dynamic and interconnected is crucial and in this case um, this happens I used to live in Santa Cruz years ago but when there's that amount of rain all think of everything that comes out of the San Lorenzo and every other watershed it's not just the big stuff that we see you know and that gets coverage like the 20 foot you know tree logs and stuff but it's everything else that's coming down those watersheds and that's all over our beaches um, that's in the water for days and days and days and that's a good example of how how we're thinking about this stuff sort of at a kind of a broader interconnected level is going to matter right and it's, so it's not just a matter of like putting up a seawall and blocking sea level rise for a certain number of years we got to think what about all the pollutants that are out there what about everything else is getting washed down these watersheds what other kind of stuff are we dealing with one thing down at the pier um i'm not sure exactly what happened but i'm sure you all know the smell when when it's like a busted sewer line and it was extremely strong right at that sea cliff pier and I've been in other places after storms and immediately, you know, I'm thinking this is either an infrastructure failure or damage and all this stuff is coming together. And, you know, hopefully it kind of pushes us to, to rethink it sooner than later.
3: Totally. Ryan, I think it comes down to that communication as well. Same thing here down the Ventura river. I don't know if you heard it up there, but up in Ojai, they, the, all the flooding and some of the sewer pipes burst and 14 million gallons of sewage went down the Ventura River. And so everywhere you were walking, that smell was pretty intense. And, you know, you had that kind of chocolate milk looking water anyway from all the silts and stuff. But there were signs posted everywhere. I took all of these pictures of the signs And then I was walking along the beach, and people are waiting in the water. The surfers are still out there. 14 million gallons of sewage in there. Oh, it's I can't even. So where, where is that communication message going awry? I mean, there are signs. You can't walk on the beach in that area without passing these signs of, you know, the water is not healthy. The water is contaminated. Do not touch the water. And then there's people waiting in the water and out there surfing, finally excited to have big waves and no rain.
0: Well, in in so many locations, those signs go up immediately after any rainfall. Yeah. And yet, in, in this case, you're pointing to a really critical reason to avoid being in the water. And so we don't have those gradations of, we really, really mean it this time because You're they're, right.
3: they're... serious this time, really stay out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> That's so
0: true, Leslie. So Kiki, are you getting any data right now? Are you doing any quantitative?
3: You know, every time I'm excited, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fly this area with the drone. It rains again. And so I'm pl- I was planning on going out tomorrow and trying to fly that Surfer's Point area again, you know, because again, we're trying to think about ways to build these sort of natural dune systems. And this one, again, really got kind of annihilated. So I'm very curious to go out there and fly the drone and construct the the elevation model of that area. And then basically, what I'm hoping is I can fly it periodically and watch it sort of reestablish itself, because that's the kind of data that would be really helpful in terms of putting some quantitative information on how beaches rebound after a storm like this, right? We have some of that information for after El Ninos, you know, El Ninos and the big waves and storms will strip the sand off of our beaches. And I think the the rule of thumb is it takes approximately three years for that sand to move from those offshore sandbars back onto the beach. So I'm kind of curious if even though this wasn't sort of El Nino storm, if, if we have that kind of a similar rebound of our beaches after they've just been stripped of all of the sand. But even those El Nino storms from a couple of years ago, I don't remember the beaches looking this stripped, right? There are just the, the cobble bedrock everywhere I'm looking up and down the beaches. There was very little sand out on these stretches of beaches that I was looking at. So yeah, I'd love to get the drone out there. I'm going to be flying around sort of the Ventura Harbor area because they're actually getting ready to dredge that harbor next month. So I'm sure it's full now. I just heard that the Santa Barbara Harbor is now, the whole navigation channel is filled. So they're going to have to figure out how to move that sediment. So in terms of the sand, which, you know, I get very excited about, um, there's a lot of interesting sort of sand issues and sand movement things going on right now.
0: Yeah, I was wondering what was happening with the harbors. It just seems like the the prime opportunity for them to, to fill with sand. Whether that's an opportunity or a hindrance, certainly for the harbor, it is. But getting that out then gets it to the coast. Do you have much pre-storm data that you can use to?
3: I do. I do actually. I try to fly all of the beaches—not all of the beaches—but I have about forty beaches that I'll consistently fly every June, and so every June I can see sort of year after year how they're changing. And then right there at uh, Surfers Point, where they've built those dune—that whole dune system—I fly that more regularly. So I have a couple of times a year elevation data that I can sort of check over the years, how it's doing.
0: Kiki, you've talked a lot about um, that the living shoreline that's at Surfer's Point and described it as both really getting thrashed and then also an indication of success. How do you tell that story? How do you make it? Do the people who go out there right now go, oh, wow, it worked? Do they go, oh, what happened here?
3: Yeah, I think they go, ooh, what happened here? And it's sort of our job as communicators to say like, no, this is exactly what we wanted to happen. Same thing with those dunes out. There's a neighborhood called Pierpont here where the homeowners get very upset because they have all of this sand in front of their house and the dunes are so big, it blocks their view of the ocean, right? And you, I try to communicate with them. I've had a couple of talks with their homeowner's groups and things like, no, these dunes are actually the only thing that's standing between you and the water, right? And so it's really interesting when we have storms like this and you watch wherever the dunes were not, the water is coming up and into the streets and flooding their roads and moving all of the sand into the streets and things like that. And then the dunes are getting, you know, eaten away by the waves, but absorbing all of that energy right? And moving that sand so now the dunes are gone, but the houses were protected, right? And so it's sort of figuring out ways to tell that story, whether it's the the dune system at Surfer's Point or the, the dunes that are in front of this house or whatever it is. Why is sand, why is elevation important as a buffer, right? As a buffer to absorb that Energy from the waves. And then, how can I watch that? How can I communicate that that will be resilient? That's the part of the coast that is resilient, right? As long as we have the sand continuing to move in the system, those dunes will, you know, reform and revegetate and be ready for the next storm. Of course, unless that next storm is next week, as it's been right now, where there is no time to be resilient. Uh, but that's the intent, right?
2: Yeah, especially with King Tides coming up here pretty soon. Oh,
3: I know. I just saw that with the 20th of January.
2: Ooh. Yeah, this the 20th. I think it's the 20th and 21st. I believe it's Saturday and Sunday coming up. Um, I was just gonna say, you know, I was thinking about Leslie what you're what you're saying and Kiki what you're saying, and I think in a way with somewhere like surfer's point, And there's been, you know, similar kind of stuff. Um, I think it all got mostly washed away, but the Del Mar did a similar kind of project. But I think the setback and the willingness to do that, right, let's put dunes there. Let's put something that is supposed to withstand this kind of stuff, and it may get pulled away. And we may have to think about like, you know, vegetating it again but that's or putting dunes or you know supporting it but that's quite a bit different than major like roads and other kind of infrastructure and so i think communication wise there is a bit of a win there right just the willingness to like hey maybe we should set a certain amount of space aside as kind of this buffer um and that's a that's a different approach to coastal development like a city that probably you know isn't gonna be or it isn't but maybe it should be um and this is just kind of how it's you know its history has played out um but like somewhere like marina i always look at that with the big huge setback and you know you got those big dunes obviously not everybody's gonna have these big dunes that in a sense that wasn't the like ideal thing, right? You don't have shopping and, you know, the boardwalk sort of thing right on the water. It's set back. But that's kind of closer. That's a lot more of what we need, right? Cuz we have so much stuff right on the edge. And so I see some just the interest in um some of these different options. I there's some hope there for me that that and it's it's not this huge thing that we're talking by 50 years, we got to have this in place. It's it. And Leslie, this goes back to a point you made earlier about you know taking this stuff incrementally so that people find it manageable. Um, or maybe the problem is you know being able to see what it could look like. And I think some of these spaces um, give us an idea of maybe what we could do. And that 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 buffer zone and being like socially and culturally and economically willing to set that space aside, that would be a huge step if it becomes more and more common, right?
3: Yeah, I think you're right there. And we just need those success stories to say, see, this is what it could look like. We can't do this everywhere and it's not our 50 year solution, but you know, it could really work while we sort of sort out other things to do.
0: Well, a, a colleague of mine, um, Jen Irish, has done some analysis, and probably she's not the only one, but I I just remember her report about looking at what might have happened in certain areas without the protective buffers that they had, the dunes that they had along the East Coast with hurricanes. And it seems like the um, Surfer's Point or some some of these areas with a living shoreline and despite people going there and thinking it's kind of a mess, doing simulations showing what would have happened without that, what would have happened if it was in the condition it was before those dunes were built, it seems like that's a really telling story as well. It's not, it's one thing to say, see, this worked, but also to say, see what might have happened. I think that's something to try and work for in the future as well. And maybe, Kiki, because you've got so much data already from Surfer's Point area, that might be something you and your students can start to work on.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great idea, particularly right there where you've got the direct contrast between this is the area where we moved the bike path inland, we built these dunes, We've watched them work. We watched them erode. We watched them come back. And just downstream, or d- not downstream, down the coast of it, we have the bike path that we didn't move. We did not build the dune system. And now that whole area is coned off because the sand is gone. That little bluff is retreating. Now you can't even walk on the path. And it's like, okay, this is where we were intentional, this is where we were not. It's supposed to be phase two, right? Which we haven't implemented yet. And I've got, you know, the the aerial photographs and the elevation data to show the stark difference between where we were intentional and thoughtful and where we just sort of responded to sort of these emergency situations in maybe a less than ideal way. I think it's a great project for students, actually.
0: So you mentioned doing your surveys now with, with drones. And I remember going out you know, with all the survey equipment and doing surveys that way. Technology has changed so much.
3: So much, Leslie, so much. I mean, I was right out there with you where you could spend all day just going down a straight line from the back beach to the water, back beach to the water. <laughs> and now it would take us all day to do a small sort of stretch of beach and still just get trans sex you know every 10 meters or whatever and now i can go out with the drone and fly it and in an hour i could cover you know a half a kilometer of beach at a one centimeter resolution it's really crazy what we can look at now in terms of the resolution we can get how quickly we can go out and do that survey Um, it's pretty pretty cool and the students like it, right? And so it's not too hard to get some volunteers out there to help me go and monitor the coast.
0: So Ryan, turning this back to you again, have you seen any corresponding incremental change in how to communicate all this information? And what would you suggest we start doing better if, not, if we're not doing it now?
2: I don't know if I've seen, you know, since we last talked, I'm kind of at this spot where I'm I'm wanting to, you know, and it's similar to you, Kiki, when these kind of things happen and you want to sort of get out there. But in my case as well, the 17 has been closed. I mean, the 17, the nine, all these closures, and I want to go talk to people and see what they're thinking. Um, That's kind of one of my natural responses, I guess. Um, I kind of have, it's kind of an open question to me um, from who I have talked to. And and I also, it was really interesting to sort of follow the coverage of Capitola and Santa Cruz on social media, a lot of conversation about it. Um, And, you know, conversation about like how difficult it was, uh, what people are dealing with, um, the amount of kind of uh, loss, but also, you know, the work that people are having to do and to kind of build things back. Um, and so I, I'm hopeful seeing people in a way, um, seeing this and talking about it and, and similar to some of the conclusions that came from some of the work I did on the seawall at pleasure point, um, people are pretty, you know, there can be the polarized sort of discussion about some of these issues. It helps to listen to people and see where they're at. And, and people can be, um, and I saw this in some of my research on Pleasure Point, very like nuanced and pragmatic, where in the case of Pleasure Point, I had some people on the more qualitative questions telling me, yeah, that seawall cleaned that beach up. There was a bunch of concrete and riprap and it was a mess. And there were access problems, and there was there were all kinds of issues, and so on. On one dimension, they talk about what what sort of worked right. On another dimension, they're talking about some of the other risks that come about. And I think um, it's going to be important to talk to people after these recent events um, about sort of similar perspectives and experiences. I think you know communication has to be sort of a two-way thing. Um, and making the conversation possible sometimes it helps to just listen and see where people at. And and again, like on social media, I see this like people talking about what they were dealing with. I think that's like a starting point. You know, what are the difficulties? what are what's some of the common ground? What are some of the common concerns we all have? I think that's a good way whatever people's opinions are about sea level rise and climate change and all that, it's a good place to start. What did you see? What was it like? What kind of flooding did you experience? Um, what kinds of things got cut off? What did you hear? What people did you talk to? So I find a lot of hope in that, right? In just taking the time it's hard, right? Um, but taking the time to see where people are. I think that's a really critical part of communication.
0: So in sort of wrapping this up and talking about where, where are people right now, where are they thinking? For both of you, what is the sort of one area you've, you've gotten out a little bit, but what is the area you've not gotten to that you want to get to next and see what's happening there? What part of the coast is is sort of drawing you once you can get out again?
2: Well, um, I just made one quick trip out to, you know, Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz Aptos, Capitola. I would like to get back out there um, for to talk to quite a bit more people. I also, uh, you know, I'm from North San Diego County, I didn't hear a lot of news of how things played out down there. I really want to get back down there and talk to some folks and see, you know, there's, I, there's always certain kind of sites. I want to check and see um, how things went, what people are thinking um, and how it's looking right now. So getting back out and getting quite a bit more time out in Santa Cruz, Aptos, Capitola, and then, getting the chance as soon as I can to get down to North San Diego for sure.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, Ryan, we need your awesome pictures. You do such a great job with the pictures. And Leslie, I think you are right on it here where all of this stuff, as horrible as it is, it really allows us to turn up the volume on the conversation and things like capturing all of these events with our pictures will help us in the future with this conversation right right ryan is an incredible photographer and he does such a great job capturing these things and so now like we were talking about with surfers point okay yes it was destructive okay it's destroyed now we want to go back and take pictures of it rebounding or this is what happened to the road and all the rocks are gone and all the water was wash- washing over it well what's going to happen in the next couple of days right and so making sure to go out there and take those photographs and fly it with a drone or or whatever, I think that's, you know, that's why we do what we do. We're in this sort of applied science world where, okay, what is the information that we need to keep moving this discussion forward? What's the data we can collect right now that can help us communicate this? I don't know. We, I hope we're at 57 times now, but... How can we make this message resonate where people will then get behind sort of our our longer term management strategies and sort of open the doors to those conversations?
0: I I think this has been a great conversation for me. I'd love to talk with you more. I mean, I could just keep going for a couple more hours, but I do think we need to kind of limit this to a, a reasonable amount of time. Um, thank you so much, both of you, Kiki and Ryan, for taking the time to talk about the, the storms sort of in this lull, perhaps, or while we can you know, use the, while they are still fresh in our minds. And I'd like to also thank everyone for listening today. And I, I think this re, re-examination of the pathway forward using these storms as a precedent for that, as a basis upon which to talk about this again, has been a great opportunity to hear more from Kiki and Ryan. I hope to do that other times in the future, maybe 57 times, Kiki, but (laughs) so until next time, thank you so much. Enjoy the coast and enjoy your views of the shore.